0: And as a leadership team, we were kind of sitting around afterwards, safe social distance. And, you know, we looked at each other, and this was 2020, and said, thank God we did all that work on culture, because it's really the values that we navigated through to make decisions about, you know, how we navigate and pivot every step of the way throughout COVID. Had we not, like, solidified this foundation of culture, we wouldn't be here today.
1: Welcome to The Green Hour, a community of innovators, activists, and government leaders in the world of sustainability. Each week, you will hear from a leader in sustainability to help unlock your mind to a greener future. Hey guys, I'm Preston Pogue, and today you're going to hear how to build strong organizational cultures in the face of change. Our guest is a culture master who has left her mark on companies like Chipotle, GameStop, Kate Spade, Red Bull, Krispy Kreme, and more. Join us on this episode as we explore her unique approach to shaping workplace culture, overcoming challenges in times of growth, and adapting during periods of change. We'll dive into her role as Chief People and Inclusion Officer at Chipotle, where she addressed food safety concerns, established core values, And navigated the impact of COVID 19 on workplace dynamics. Plus, we'll touch on ESG, focusing on the S, social, and discuss the hurdles companies face in sustaining diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives. Stay tuned for a special segment on the Descendants Project, where she helped bring together descendants of civil rights leaders for a gathering at the White House. Learn about workplace dynamics building resilient cultures and diversity equity and inclusion on this episode of the green hour Larry Sin once said culture is not an initiative culture is the enabler of all initiatives this idea suggests that a strong workplace culture makes even challenging tasks possible When thinking about your past workplaces, consider the atmosphere. Did you feel empowered, and were the company's values embraced by everyone? It's clear that a healthy organizational culture is crucial for long-term success, as negative cultures can lead to unfavorable outcomes. Today, we're honored to have Marisa Andrada, known as a kindness catalyst and culture master, on our show. With a background as the former Chief People and Inclusion Officer at Chipotle, and notable contributions to Red Bull, Kate Spade, GameStop, and her current role on the board at Krispy Kreme, Miss Andrada brings a wealth of experience. As a founding member of the CNBC Workforce Executive Council and a distinguished 2020 American Business Award Gold Stevie winner, she has consistently earned recognition, including spots on the HRD Global 100 list, Business Insider's HR Innovators list, in Nation's Restaurant News, The Power List for Women of Influence. Throughout her career, Miss Andrata has remained dedicated to transforming organizational cultures, often stepping in during times of change. A strong culture doesn't magically appear overnight, and it's not only influenced by top executives, it's a result of collective effort over time, requiring buy-in from everyone in the organization. Reflecting back on Larry Sin's quote, culture is not an initiative. Culture is the enabler of all initiatives, emphasizes that culture forms the foundation of an organization. And when built effectively, it turns seemingly impossible tasks into achievable goals. Welcome back to The Green Hour. We're joined by Marisa Andrada today commonly referred to as a as a kindness catalyst, culture master, someone who has really redefined cultures in a lot of companies. Um, some of those like Chipotle, Krispy Kreme, GameStop, Red Bull, Kate Spade, Starbucks, among others. Um, but Marisa, I'm so excited to have you join us because I think this aspect of culture and really when looking at ESG, focusing on that S, the social aspect of it, it's so critical. Um, so I think that these conversations need to be heard. They're important. Um, so again, to just thank you so much for joining us.
0: Preston, I'm super excited to be here. I think as you and I have gotten into each other leading up to your Green Hour, um, I'm passionate about everything that you are inquiring about, not only with me, but throughout this podcast that you're doing. So I'm honored to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me.
1: Yeah, Well, well I appreciate it. I guess I would start off by asking, you know, your early roots um, growing up through some research. I, you know, I found that you are a first generation American growing up. You're navigating English as a second language and then look at you now and what you've been able to accomplish. So it's, it's a success story in itself. But I would like to share with the listeners and have you share, you know, how, how your upbringing kind of led you into where you are today.
0: Yeah, I'm so glad you asked that question. I think what I've realized, having been in corporate America for almost three decades and now on to my next act and doing my own thing, look, I think what's navigated me throughout my career is getting real clarity about who I am, where I came from, and really honoring that. And you've done a lot of research. So, yeah, I'm always proud to say I am a first generation American born and raised in Southern California. I'm a Los Angeles native, like an LA gal. And um, I think what's motivated me is I will bring it back to my parents, right? So my dad came here in 1959. My mom came here in the mid-60s. They eventually met, and um, they raised a family here. And my dad had a sister who lived here, and then my mom eventually brought all of her family over. And I share this detail with you because as each of her sisters came over, she had three sisters that she sponsored who then left their families behind in the Philippines. Who then came here and then also living at our house, we had some family friends who were, you know, from Mexico. And back then I didn't realize I didn't know if they were legal or not. You know, you just don't know that as a kid. And so um, I think about my family when they had jobs in another country, like teachers, accountants, you know, professional jobs. And here in the land of opportunity in America, the companies that would hire them were like fast food, retail, minimum wage roles. And so to watch my family make their way and um, actually become successful in their own, it's not a surprise to me that I've ended up in a career in human resources with um, a highly diverse frontline workforce, regardless of the company that I've been a part of. I guess that was kind of meant to be. And I think, um, I know you've done the research, when we finally would go off to school. So going off to school for me was was kindergarten my parents would always say only speak English because we want people to treat you fairly and consistently. You know, like it, that was interesting. And um, I I think about like growing up and going grocery shopping with my dad. And, you know, it still sticks in, with me today when I think about going to the grocery store and at the check stand, people yelling and speaking slowly to my dad, I'm like because he wants to write a check for our groceries. And I'm like, you know, you don't need to yell at my dad, A, he understands English, you know, and he, and he understands what you're saying. So I need to do no need to do that. So not a surprise, fast forward, I think that upbringing, and my parents always telling me, get good grades, we want you to grow up to be a doctor, because that to them was success, right? Like, how can you become successful in this world in the United States? And, you know, I still think about this commitment to human resources, And really becoming a voice for people inside of organizations, you can still be a doctor just in a different way, you Mm -hmm. know? And so that upbringing and my roots really goes back to studying and working really hard and um, a career in human resources, I think was kind of meant to be because I was a biology major to start. And when I was a year into my undergrad at Cal Poly Pomona, I'm like, you know, the reason why I love math and science so much and school so much in high school was because of the environment. Like I was also in track and cross country. I was a cheerleader of student government. I also was a youth leader at the church that I was a part of. And to me, that was all around how do you make this the best experience possible? And I think that is what got me through school. Um, and then that is what kind of became a career in human resources. It's about the people experience inside of companies. Hmm.
1: Yeah, I'll say um, for me, I'm, I'm not a first generation American, but I have a lot of friends that are, um, and, and two people I can think of when I was in college in, in Pikeville, Kentucky, it's a very um, old old coal mining town in Eastern Kentucky. We had, um, I had a professor, um, him and his wife um, were from India. They came over for school. Um, he had just finished his PhD program and she had just received her second MBA. She received oh one my in goodness. and then one in the U.S. Some of the the most the smartest people you've ever met, um, the nicest people, just wholesome people. But I remember towards the end of, end of my schooling there, um, his wife, um, who was brilliant, like I said, two MBAs, studying, studying to become a, um, a CPA. And her, I don't know if it was a work visa or, or what it was, got denied. So she wasn't able to receive a paycheck yeah. for, for over a year. Um, because it got denied, and so I, I can—I I guess I can connect to first-generation Americans like like that because it, it's just—it's—it's it's sad to me when you have people like that that are that are upstanding citizens to the community that are bringing so much value, but we have not given them—I guess—a system in which they can be successful, mean um, and really help out the community because Pikeville could have used her help so much. But yeah, I just wanted to add that in there just because that connection piece.
0: I agree with you. That's, I I mean, that's what happens, right? And I think especially with, I don't know, I think the workforce today, there's still a shortage of skills. Mm. And so the fact that the visa was denied, I just don't understand that, you know, and I'm not a politician, so I don't know how all of that works, like the government works, but, you know, there's room for everybody.
1: Right, right. Well, we started off this talk, and I, I described you as a um, a culture master, um, how, how you had really gone into all these different organizations, really in times of transformation, and kind of redefined the value, redefined the culture. In that experience in all these companies, really, it led to business success. I mean, your, your track record speaks for itself. So what I want to understand is, You know how you create a lasting culture in a time of transformation, because a lot of these companies you enter into, like I said, it was during times of transformation, times that might be unsettling, Um, and you in, and you're almost like a change agent. So I want to understand really, you know, how how you did that, Um, how you came in and created these lasting cultures during these times of transformation.
0: Well, I think it's not about me, right? So I'll I'll start there. I think it's about, you know, a word that I love using is about co-creation. How do you leverage the ideas, gain the knowledge from people inside the organization to really shape something that is enduring and is sustainable? And so really, really early on, I think about my first head of HR role was actually at Red Bull. So when Red Bull came to the United States, it was already establishing itself as a brand, it was a category creator for the energy drinks and then, you know, I think Monster was just coming coming in. And I it was the first HR leader that the CEO had ever hired and um and I think the culture went from being a very heritage, very kind of macho, I'll say this, right, culture where it was about motocross and skating and surfing and and then I think the brand began to diversify into video gaming, fashion, um, librarians, teachers, all of that. And so when you think about brands, I'll start that. Like, what does the brand stand for? And what I believe in, and I've always asked leaders this, especially because I've worked in a lot of consumer facing companies. Like when you talk about what is the brand promise to the customer, I really sure hope that the people inside the organization also believe that too, right? Are they, living this brand promise that we're now saying to the customer um that you know red bull gives you wings for example do people feel like they're also energized mind body and spirit inside the company and what is the company doing to make sure that they feel that way because they should feel like they're also getting wings by working inside the company if that makes sense when i talk about the brand promise coming to life And so I think it's not about me coming in. Yeah, I could be a change agent and uh, a symbol of change. And typically, when I've joined organizations, it's normally a nod to say, you know, with the exception of Starbucks, you know, HR already existed. But it's a nod to say, hey, we're really committed to the people experience inside this company. There's a new HR leader coming on board, human resources, to help us really get a hold of our culture. And I think the way you do that is, you know, it's pretty... I say it's formulaic to me. It takes a different form in every company. It's getting really clear about the brand. It's getting really clear about the purpose, who we are, what we stand for, how we work together, starting with the leaders, but then bringing that to the rest of the organization and just asking them about their experience and is it true for them too? And so I think at the very beginning of any transformation really is getting clarity about who you are and what you stand for. You know, not unlike my own personal story about honoring who I am and where I came from um, and standing on that to navigate through life and career. I think it's the same for organizations in that um, what is your brand? And then I think to really create an enduring and sustaining culture that people see that they are a part of is that they need to co-create it with you. And mm-hmm. so the start of any transformation really does begin with that. And I think it takes, um, and it could be any functional leader, but, you know, welcome human resources and people experience. You know, I sure do hope that companies have organizations and people and human resources leaders that actually, A, like people, B, are open to anything, like any idea. because so I think that's also a way of being, you know, it's like, how do you go and invite people to actually help shape this with you? And so... I think, you know, I'm being very high level about it, but the start of any change and any lasting change starts with getting alignment at leadership levels, getting alignment at every level of the organization on our purpose and values, right? Who are we? What do we stand for? How do we work together? And getting common language around that in order to go through any kind of change. And in all of these companies, it is about growth, right? Like how do you unlock the potential of people. And the only way you can do that is by asking them. Right, So I think that's like where it all starts. And I think if there is a way that where it's not, hey, you hire a consulting firm and outcome, you know, the leadership team goes away for however long and outcomes all these new values, it's not real unless the people have the chance to shape it, touch it, co-create it with you. And then also lean on that energy to figure out, How do these become real to the organization? And so it's not just about like, um, here are all the values, but then what's evidence of that in terms of elevating people in the organization? So, um, for example, I think about um, in organizations, how does it become like a way of how they get their work done? And so it could be, I'll get super nerdy, and I know this is not like HR audiences, but I think about if these are our values, are we hiring people who live the values? And if we're hiring people who live the values, how are we creating success profiles, job descriptions, for example, that we're hiring against that integrate the behaviors of the values that we're trying to reinforce in the organization? And how do you teach leaders to identify for that, assess for that? And then how do you develop against that? Right. And then how does that live? I mean, that's one small example. Um, but then if I think about, I'll fast forward and I know we'll talk about this in more detail if you want, you know, at Chipotle, the the purpose was all around cultivating a better world through food with integrity and then over time it was and through people with integrity. And how do you do that? Right. And it's like, how are you investing in the people in the organization so that as the organization grows, the only way the organization can grow is that they're growing too, you know? And so I know that's really broad, but yeah. I think about like going into organizations, it really does start from a place of clarity and purpose and values and that it's actually co-created at every level in the organization, not just the leadership team.
1: Yeah. I, I know you can go into organizations and you have your your core values your and values on the wall, um, but it's really about you know how is that integrated into everything that you do and, and talking about job description, hiring people that kind of embody those qualities. I've never really even thought about that. Um, I mean, you read core values, but are you as HR people hiring people that again embody that? And I would ask you, you know, you're talking about you know, building building these cultures uh, in times of transformation, and, and you're talking about you got to figure out who you are, you got to figure out what you stand for. So, I mean, we mentioned we're all of the different companies that you are involved with, that you help grow the core values, grow the culture. So what's the process um, like when you walk into an organization for the first time and you're trying to gauge what their culture is? Because you can read about it online. You can, you can walk to executive leadership, but you really can't get a feel for it until you're in the building around people. So I'd be curious to know what your process was in all these companies. Um, in the early days, trying to figure out what the culture is and how people, I guess, interact and what the core values are.
0: Yeah, I think it's a pretty, if I boil it down, it's a pretty simple process. It's about hearing and seeing people asking lots of questions and listening versus talking, right? And so what I mean by that is in in every one of these instances, and then I know you mentioned Krispy Kreme earlier. In Krispy Kreme, I actually joined as a director on the board. They have a super strong culture. And I think there's a difference when you're a board member and how you make sure that reflects in strategies. That's a whole different thing. But all the other organizations, the process that I've followed is, first of all, build those one on one relationships with the leaders that you're working with. So in this case, if I'm coming in reporting to the CEO and then there's a whole C suite, you know, around you, it's not only them, but also their direct reports. And so in terms of understanding culture, It's understanding their experience so far as being part of the organization, what they see as as wins, but also what they see as opportunities for the future in the context of, you know, the strategy that this company is trying to accomplish, right? So every time I've joined a company, it's always at some inflection point of, They just acquired another company. Now they're trying to integrate both together, or there's some kind of crisis that they're trying to overcome and turn the company around, right? Or now they want to grow, and what is that business model that's evolving and how you grow? So one thing is, first of all, understand the business, very critical in any kind of culture change. Know your business, right? Like how do companies make money, and what is the business model? So there's that. Secondly, or parallel in parallel come in and um, really build what I call a 360 view of culture. You know, what does the leader, the CEO, the C-suite, what are they experiencing? How do they define it? Um, And again, it's not like, tell me what culture is. It's like, how are you experiencing the environment here? And what is it that we can continue to do and or do differently in order to accomplish this business model that, you know, you've also studied that you understand? Um, and then when I say 360, their direct reports. But then also, you know, I've worked at a lot of companies where there was a huge frontline organization. And going in and visiting, and typically, it's not the headquarters, right? It's the frontline, it's the stores, it's the restaurants, it's the the business unit that's customer facing. And actually going in there and talking to people about their experience. Now, it's a little different. You know, I think about my career, I've had the chance to really meet with thousands Thousands one-on-one, having one-on-one conversations with hourly team members, you know, no matter what company, and asking them, you know, these pretty basic questions like, how long have you been with the company? How did you end up joining? Why did you join? And then why do you stay, right? And I think those key questions, and when you synthesize all of that, and it doesn't, it's not just me, it's a team of leaders, a team of people, pulling that all together, I think that's how you really assess culture. It's the experience that people are feeling today, you know, and what they hope for the future in order to feel this company can be successful at accomplishing whatever XYZ business model and strategy that they have in front of them. But it is a lot of listening. And um, it's very different because I think being um, or having been a human resources leader typically i've come in during times of crisis and change and leaders and people are quick to say oh you're the new hr leader here's what you need to be doing right and i think i my response to that has always been thank you for that amazing solution could be something we could accomplish but say more about why you think that is a solution it's not that you know literal but if the thing you're asking me or my team to accomplish is this I want to get to the why why is that why is it that you think as an organization or as a human resources function we need to be you know creating a training program around customer service I mean that I remember that like when I first got to gamestop I think that was one of the biggest things that like the operations leader said oh you need to create a training function who then can create training around customer service and therefore we can grow you know our sales but you know getting to the core of that what is the issue and really being open to listening that once you kind of understand okay it wasn't training that was the issue it was around you know stability of the people inside the organization that became the issue so anyway I think it's coming in and not only asking the questions, but really, truly being open to listen. And then the mm. other piece, too, and I've chatted with a lot of, I call former teamies and alum that I've worked with, is actually also coming from a place that you want to know. Like, you know, it's not like, oh, I'm going to come in and collect this data. Like, you're a human being who actually really cares about the other person, why they're there, and you care about what it is that they have to say. And I think, um, that's important, too. I think the approach is really important. And so uh, it's really human to human how we connect with people.
1: Right, right. So you, you join you join a lot of these companies and organizations during times of crisis and change. And I feel like for a lot of people, it's, it's challenging enough to kind of join an organization as a leader. But when you're joining during crisis and change, uh, that's a whole nother story, right? And you talk a lot about Leading with kindness. Um, in the beginning, we talked about um, how you're, you're a kindness catalyst. I want to understand the, the concept of leading with kindness and really its impact on workplace culture.
0: Yeah. I, you know, I, it, it's funny. Like, it's not funny. I think I had the chance to be interviewed by someone back in 2019, and I still remember this question. And the question was Hey, if you can lead a movement, right? What would that movement be and why? And I'm like, I would choose to lead a movement for kindness. And I say that because, look, I think as core human beings, like I think we all have potentially the ability to be kind to others. Let me just start with that, right? And there's a lot happening in the world today where there's a lot of incivility and polarization because people see things in a different way. And I think kindness is about actually being open and actually, you know, I, I say this all the time, and I'll say this to you, in grade school, we all learn the golden rule, treat people the way you want to be treated. And I always step it up and say, actually, it's a platinum rule, you know, platinum above gold. And it's really about treat people the way they want to be treated. And what that takes is patience. And what that takes is curiosity. And sometimes really holding back on your own opinion, um, again, to be kind right? And although they may have a different point of view, may have a different background than you, it's like, I think kindness comes from a place of, wow, you have the patience and grace to really have the curiosity and the interest in wanting to know what the other person is saying and where they're coming from. And I think when I think about culture change, and again, it goes back to what I was just saying about being a human, that you're actually demonstrating that right? Because when change, people are already stressed out about, oh my gosh, all this change is going to happen. All these new leaders are coming in and what are they going to do? And I remember one of my former team members who actually was part of, um, I'd say, operations and eventually ended up in the people team, in the human resources team. They're like, here we go. Here's another leader who's coming in and what change is going to happen now? And I think what they experienced was myself as a leader and the team that i supported when i think about you know my human resources team my people team they're like you actually acted like human beings and what that really meant was you came in and you were actually really nice and kind to people right and like and to be nice and kind is really acknowledging people where they're at you know and i i remember like in um you know in, in the last company at at Chipotle, when we were going through transition, and we were moving the the support center from one city to other cities, and people who were choosing not to move with us, because, you know, they, that's a city that they love, and they didn't want to move to another city. You know, you've got to respect every emotion they're going through. And I guess that's what I mean by like, not everyone's going to react in the same way. And that's okay, because we're human beings. And I think kindness comes from a place of acknowledging that, you know, that everyone has a different perspective. And, you know, um, I always say this too, it's like so old school hip hop, but it's like, check yourself before you wreck yourself, right? Mm -hmm. Like really check where you're coming from first, because it's going to get in the way of actually truly listening to other people. And so that's why I say kindness, you know, I think it goes a long way, especially when you don't know what else to do. It's always best to be kind. Right. Like always best to. And when I say kind, it's not about being nice, but it's about being honest and being open to other people.
1: I've, I've heard it said um, that kindness, really talking about clarity and transparency when you're communicating with people, when you're working with people kind of goes beyond just, you know, well, a lot of people think of as kindness is just being nice, but it's really about, you know, giving people clarity, even being transparent with people, and that kind of create this the culture that can transform during times of crisis.
0: Oh, absolutely! No, I love it. I mean, I don't know who the quote is, but it to be clear is to be kind is to be clear, right? Or mm-hmm. to be clear is to be kind, and um, especially in times of change, just being upfront with people about here's what's going on and here's why it's happening. And although it's a hard message to deliver, I think really underscoring the why change is happening goes such a long way. And although they may not want to hear it, yeah, that's kindness to me. Like that is being transparent and clear, not hiding behind why we're doing this. Just like we're doing this thing and everyone go along with it. No one ever wants things to happen to them. They want to be part of changing the world too. Like they want to be part of change. So how do you do that? be clear with them and communicate. So yeah, it is exactly as you see it, like transparency and clarity is being kind, you know, and also because it's coming from a place of care. That's why you're being transparent and kind with people.
1: Yeah, it's, it's, it's very interesting, because as you say that I can think back, um, my career, I haven't been in the workforce for a long time, but I can think about leaders, who led with kindness. Um, and, and again, as we're, we're breaking it down, clarity, transparency, leading with care, that they really care for the people that are, that are working with them, working for them. But I kind of want to pivot now to talking about your experiences with Chipotle, where you served as chief people officer and later on adding to your title of inclusion officer. But, you know, we've been talking about you joining organizations during times of crisis and change. Ripotle is a great example of that. Um, you join when there was food safety concerns. You know, there's a lawsuit kind of brewing. You join when a new CEO just took the reins. Um, so there's a lot of, uh, I guess, pieces that are undecided when you join. So I kind of want to understand, you know, that that whole process and your tenure there um, and how you navigated all of the various things, because you also now get a COVID. Um, I, didn't, I didn't know that, but that so you navigate and change, probably an understatement for all the things that um, the Chipotle team had to kind of work through during that time.
0: Yeah, I, it's interesting because I, uh, I am a beloved consumer of Chipotle. I was before I joined the company. I am since I've left the company. And yeah, I actually didn't believe that the food safety issue was real because it didn't impact where I lived in the United States, you know, at the time. And um, anyway... Uh, the company had done an amazing job before the new CEO got there, before this new team got there, and including me as being part of the new team, really assembling an amazing group of PhD leaders to act as a food safety council to ensure that there were, you know, food safety protocols that are world class and are right at Chipotle. And yet another food safety issue was happening right after those protocols are in place. And so, I remember when um the new CEO joined the company and he had reached out to me and I'm like, you know, it makes me wonder from the outside looking in, what the heck is happening in the culture that here's this amazing PhD council really helping to reset protocols on world-class food safety measures in each of the restaurants and yet another food safety issue happens, right? Like ha- what is getting lost in the communication all the way to the front line, that um, it it's not happening. And, you know, it became a question of culture. Like, what kind of culture are we creating where maybe we're not fo- following the food safety protocols, as an example, right? And so um, we talked about that. I think one of my first phone calls and conversations with him after he had recently joined the company, and it really became a question of a couple of things. One is, do we have the right capable leaders and functions in the center that can help create this culture of food safety, but also this culture of engagement with employees. And so um, that, that was a big question of mine. And I think that's probably what got me in the door, so to speak, meeting with this leader and with the leaders. It was around what culture are we creating that while there's world-class food safety protocols, that somehow in certain restaurants, it's just not happening. And food safety issues happen again. And so I would say, you know, especially at Chipotle, it was really about um, any organization, and I've seen it, right? I've joined organizations where literally there's people who've been there from the very beginning, and then they are here now, 15, 20 years later. And when I talk about capabilities, over time, you're going to need to build out, um, strong professional capabilities, right? So, for example, we had a small but mighty human resources team and that maybe there were other human resources capabilities that needed to exist around, again, leadership development, culture development, etc. Um, other functions in the organization like marketing analytics, right? Like they are great marketing people, but then is there an analytic function understanding the consumer behavior? So, when I think about different capabilities in the organization, how do we mature those very quickly, accelerate those very quickly for this next kind of spurt of growth for the company? And I think what we realized too was, you know, culture, a culture of um problem solving and creativity also was an opportunity. And so um coming in to Chipotle, I think very quickly, and it wasn't just about the human resources leader. It was about a collective leadership team really identifying in order for this transformation to happen. And, you know, here is the new strategy for growth, right? And it was about ensuring great food safety protocols, great tasting food, and, you know, increasing points of access was a big thing. But then how do you do that? You do that through the people. And, um, you know, I go back to a special earnings call that we had as a company, it was like June of 2018, where our in- investor relations person came to me ahead of the call and said, oh, Marisa, you need to write write what you want to say in the earnings call to talk about the strategy for resetting culture. And I'm like, you're kidding me, because in most earnings call, it's the CEO, it's a CFO, likely the COO, getting out there and talking about, you know, the organization and um, I was honored to have a speaking part where I remember talking about part of this growth transformation that we have as this company is actually creating a culture of of development, a culture of curiosity, you know, a culture of innovation that's going to happen. And so um, I think when you align as a leadership team, that culture is one of the pillars You know, that we need to invest in people. We need to invest in aligned purpose and aligned values. You know, I think that became the basis of our transformation, right? So if I think about the work that we did and I kind of shared with you the high level process as a leadership team, we sat in a room together and it was really about what do we expect from each other? How do we work together? It's also around what are all the artifacts of this company and how we got here? And then from there, we came up with a set of like nine, values around how we work together and then my team took that information my training team and we went out into the restaurants and spoke with 300 hourly employees and said hey the you know the new leaders came up with this is this real and what do you think and they're like you want to, you want me to tell you right and then like 300 people touched that and we came back with nine to like six different values and then we took it to the um, restaurant leaders and above restaurant leaders. And then they came back and you know continued to refine that language. And then we took it to employees that we knew would be moving with us from Denver to Newport Beach or Denver to Columbus and said, what do you think? And then we eventually got that down to four values. So imagine everyone's touching this at every level. And then I think the other thing too is using language that was very specific to the company right? Because you can see values in any other company, go to any website, right? And they might say integrity is a value, or they might say, you know, diversity is a value. But then how do you make those values very specific to your company? And I think, you know, with Chipotle, uh, they, they got very specific around the values, you know, I still know them. You know, the line is a moment of truth. It's about that experience that we are creating for the people, both our employees and the guests who are walking down that line, you know, to get that beautiful burrito or bowl or taco that they want to get. It's about Teach and Taste Chipotle. It started off the details. It's a very detailed organization. The fact that people show up before 7 a.m. in order to cut and, and cook, you know, the food so that it's fresh every day you know it's a detail oriented ori- oriented business it's hard work but it's teach and taste chipotle and also it's a metaphor for like as part of being this team we have the responsibility to bring others along and help them understand the details third is you know our food food is real so are we and authenticity lives here as a value and then last you know the movement is real and that the founder of the company you know he was the founder of real healthy ingredients and the fast, casual food concept. And so while we source better ingredients and we believe we hire the better people, like you do what's right, even when it's hard. And so that's what I mean around when you create values, make them really super relevant to your organization and to the strategy that you're trying to accomplish. And, um, fast forward, I think about that values work. And I remember one of my colleagues, it was during COVID and we had an earnings call, like, and, you know, I think a lot of earnings for public companies, everyone took a huge dip, right? When COVID started. And then like, because of the work that the company had done around points of access. And what I mean by that is, um, you know, early, early on, we were setting up shelves inside the restaurants so that people can order ahead and pick up like back in 2019 and then all of a sudden everyone was hurrying up and doing that in 2020 during COVID. I'm like, wow, we, you know, and the whole delivery and digital, you know, that was a big part of the transformation strategy. The fact that we did that ahead of time, but then one of my colleagues during our earnings call, our, you know, our stock took a dip, but then also went back up after the earnings call. And as a leadership team, we were kind of sitting around afterwards, safe social distance. And, you know, we looked at each other, and this was 2020 and said, thank God we did all that work on culture because it's really the values that we navigated through to make decisions about, you know, how we navigate and pivot every step of the way throughout COVID. Had we not like solidified this foundation of culture, we wouldn't be here today. And so I think that's like when you know it's true, right? Like when I say culture transformation, that people are living and breathing it. And, you know, I think about even throughout COVID, you know, we still continue to have um, what we called like our leadership conferences, but just did it virtually. And what was I was astounded about or that I experienced is that talking with leaders, the way they even describe their work, the way they describe how they do things is through the language of values. It's fascinating to me, like, wow, you know, it means it was truly a reflection of the people in the organization and a way of working. And mm. so that's kind of how we started that. Um, and that's how, That became a thing and it it was also a mantra for how we roll in human resources and people and like, um, again, really utilized it as a way of, if we're going to hire people and we had to completely reset, like hire an almost entirely new support center. And it is like, you know, every interview that I was a part of and because it was kind of a startup situation, You know, I think most people are like, I'm not used to meeting with the chief HR officer for my interviews. It was so important to share our work on values and talk about them and talk about culture with the leaders and people that we are hiring and bringing into the organization because we had to believe that they believe them too, right? When you hire people who live your values, you're not, you're going to win and every time, right? So aligned values are really important.
1: What what I love out of that I'll say is, as kind of an executive committee, y'all came up with nine core values. Um, and, and y'all could have just taken it from that and, you know, worked with leadership, and that was it. And as I think about large companies, that's what I thought kind of happened to, with these kind of things. What y'all did was y'all went out to 300 hourly employees in the restaurants to figure out, you know, what, what is our culture? What are what do these core values need to be? Um, And I can just tell you from my experience, I think I shared this with you when we were um, on a phone call probably about a month ago. In one of my previous jobs, I was doing a consulting project, basically a software implementation for a manufacturing company. And one of my one of my jobs on this project was to go out on the manufacturing floor and and figure out the process of production. Like here's the back of my hand, figure out, you know, what were the inefficiencies? Um, And I remember starting off, I, I went out there and. You know, I just kind of walked around and watched people and I was writing down notes. And then I figured out that I wasn't really getting anywhere. When I started getting input from the actual people, from the manufacturing workers, that was when I'll say the light bulb flickered on. And our project kind of jump started right then and there. Um, Because when you give people, people the voice, they will find solutions and give you the solutions that you need. You just have to give people the, we'll say the microphone. So they can speak to it um the other the other short short story I'll, I'll, I'll talk about is i read a book and i might be butchering the name but richard i just wrote it down richard Montanez. he he wrote a book um, called flame and hot he was working at um, cheetos the cheetos factory and he actually came up with the flame and hot cheetos he was working on it at his house he got it was like chili pepper and he would bring home old old Cheetos that weren't in manufacturing, and he created what we now know as flaming Hot Cheetos. That's an idea that came from someone in the manufacturing world, one of these hourly employees, someone on the floor. But Cheetos actually listened to them, and you see what happens. So I just wanted to add those two examples in there. I love
0: we- those examples, and that's exactly, you know, I, we're giving all the secrets away now, right? Like here's how transformation is enduring, right? And Um, it it comes from a place of when you are creating clarity around purpose and values, that it's not just, you know, and and by the way, a lot of companies do that, like leaders will come together, they'll come up with a strategy, they'll go out to the organization and say, here it is. But I think when you involve other people, and I learned this early on, um, I know I mentioned Red Bull, but you know, one of my mentors, Dan Ginsburg, was the CEO to whom I reported when I was at Red Bull. And what I loved about him that I learned from him was like, the best ideas should win. And the only way you can understand the best ideas is allow for them to come out. Mm. And so, again, how are you creating an environment where you are curious and open to listen to what people have to say and invite mm. people to do that where they feel safe enough to, to you know, to share that information? And again, going back to kindness, the way in which you do that, if you create a space where they feel safe to do that, they be, they feel seen when you're doing that. Yeah, I think it's really important. And it sounds like your experience on the manufacturing floor, and I remember talking about this, I think people are initially like, what, you want to know from me? It's like, well, kind of, yeah, you're the one who's really leading all of this. You're the one working on it directly. How are we supposed to know that, right? And so- I, I love that. And I, I love that Flaming Cheetos as a result of an employee idea. I normally think
1: like the
0: answers are all
1: there. We just need to ask. So the, the last point I want to talk about um, with, with Chipotle and, and your journey through the company, um, I think it was in 2020 um, when your title was Chief People Officer. Yeah. But then it added, your title got added Diversity and Inclusion Officer as well. I don't kind of want to understand, you know, this move how it happened, why it happened, and and what that kind of included um, in terms of of your day-to-day.
0: Yeah. So I think it's interesting because a lot of um, CEOs were part of the Business Roundtable. You know, these are public company CEOs. And I think what was happening after um, all the civil and social unrest, right, around the murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor was like, all right, now companies wanting, our CEOs are now appointing and hiring, promoting, whatever, right? Chief diversity officers. I remember when the CEO came to me and said, okay, Marisa, we need to do this. We talked about all of the work we did around culture. So culture was not only around the values. You know, you think about culture should be also, um, the company should be a reflection of the customers, the guests that we serve, the employees that we serve. And, um, you know, Chipotle, not unlike any other large public company that I've been a part of, has a very diverse frontline workforce, you know, frontline hourly population. And, you know, not unlike most companies, too, there's always opportunity at the top two or three levels of the organization to reflect that diversity. It just is what it is, right? Where we've come from in business in America. I think it just takes time for people to gain the skills to eventually be in the C-suite. And so, part of our work early on, and especially when we moved our our support center from Denver to you know, Newport Beach and to Columbus, and I'll get into a little detail, we had to hire a lot of people, right? So not only were we not missing a beat, making sure things were happening in the restaurants because that was day to day, how do we create a support center that was still serving the restaurants today and in a better way for the future? And look, we had the chance to really, diversify to be candid with you right diversify in terms of um backgrounds race gender experience you know it's not all just restaurants it's but you know when i think about diversity it's like when you bring all these different ideas into the room and you can't help but have innovation happen right because new ideas happen and so i think about in our hiring sprint to kind of bring new people you know, it's not like I went to the leadership team during a meeting and said, hey, I'm going to assemble a group of, you know, minority and women owned uh, uh, independent and agency search firms to come help us hire people because we also needed a recruiting team to help us do that. We just did it, you know. And when you do that, you can't help but get a diverse slate of candidates and people to come and work for you. So I'm, I'm talking about, the you know, the hard facts of diversity. and by 2020, and especially because now everyone was enlightened around like, well, our company's truly committed to diversity? And does that mean, at the top, it looks like what it looks like in the front line? You know, I remember during the summertime, um, we were we were doing these um, bi-weekly and then eventually monthly kind of broadcasts to the organization. And I remember sharing the numbers specifically the percentages specifically at the support center to show that the increase of diversity at not just the c-suite level but our direct reports and their direct reports so like the that, those layers of the organization increased diversity by 50 percent and like those are astounding numbers we just got together in 2018 right and here it is 2020 and we went from um an organization that had a lot of opportunity for diversity, but increasing it in terms of gender, in terms of background by 50% in two years, you know, that happens with action, right? And that also happens to, again, a commitment to a value, which is authenticity lives here. We want to be able to be our full selves and allow people to bring and be their full selves and best bring their best to work. And so um I shared that story to you because as we were talking about do we go out and do we promote someone or do we hire someone to be like the chief diversity officer or do we recognize the work that we've already done around culture, around leadership, around diversity? And I think that's why it's not like, let's not go and hire someone. This really, I think it was acknowledgement. Um, and I don't even want to say it was ex- expansion of the role that I was in. I think it was more of an acknowledgement of the work that my team that as a collective, as a leadership team, that we were able to accomplish. And so it is recognizing that culture and diversity was part of our work to get through, you know, chief people officer. And so it's not like our work changed, because our commitment to diversity and inclusion and the programming that we already had in place, and the investments we were making in our workforce, like Um, debt-free degrees, like access to mental health care, all of that was already in place in 2019. And then everyone followed suit in 2020. And so it's acknowledging the work we already did and really celebrating the actual results that were there. And I think that's a little different than, you know, I think fast forward, a lot of companies were like, all right, let's sprint to hire a chief diversity officer and put these programs in place if it's not germane to um, your strategy, right, as a company, your foundation and your purpose and values, then that won't sustain either.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, we use the term in sustainability of, of greenwashing. There might have been an element of that in, in kind of this as well. I mean, you, you've seen some of these companies kind of roll back DEI strategies, um, because as you're saying, Chipotle, even before these events happen, y'all were doing these things, right? And this should continued. And I think it's it, it's it another kind of line of respect for Chipotle because you know what I saw was the company actually moved to tie executive bonuses to ESG yeah, goals. That's uh, right. Is incredible. Uh, I mean that just talks to the commitment of the company. And you know, we talk about ESG. We started off this conversation really talking about you we're know, gonna focus the S the social aspect of ESG and diversity, equity and inclusion is included in that. Yes. I think, um, as you alluded to, you know, after the tragic event of George Floyd's murder, you know, many many companies ramped up their DEI. DEI. I read an article and it said DEI roles increased by fifty five percent. But now, three years later, many companies are downsizing their programs, and companies like like Google and Meta have done this. So I kind of want to understand, j- just from your perspective, you know, why this is. You've alluded to it a little bit, but you know, there's a huge ramp up this was a huge thing. And then now three years later, it's like they're, they're kind of going away.
0: Yeah. And so I, I think it's really interesting and I can't speak for, I can only be like a spectator on the outside. Um, but I, I a spectator on the outside. I had the chance to go speak at a conference um, with society for human resources, management inclusion, 23 conference back in Savannah. And a, one of the pieces of advice that I gave to, all of these DEI leaders that we're sitting in the audience who are also dealing with scaling back, et cetera, is that I believe that your strategy for DEI, your strategy for inclusion and equity and diversity needs to be grounded in, again, I'm giving you all the secrets. It's going to sound like a broken record, the purpose and values of your company. And that's grounded in the strategy for growth, right? So if you, if you draw a direct line to, Whatever the business outcome is that you're trying to drive. And the diversity, equity, and inclusion strategy really is about elevating people at the end of the day. I mean, that's why I see it, right? It is about how do you elevate people as part of their journey here at the company? How do you cultivate an environment where they can thrive? You know, I'm all about that. And to me, that is that they are seen and heard that is that you're treating them with equity and respect, you know and dignity. Um, I think a lot of the reasons why these programs went away is because there was a quick rush to, all right, what is our commitment to, um, you know, all of these different groups now that we want to be a part of. And I think all these programs showed up, right. When all the, the new diversity leaders came in, I think that we didn't take the time or they didn't take the time to really go, all right, well, what is the growth strategy for this company, right? What is the business strategy? And actually tie the diversity strategy in you know, the values of the business. And so I think when we came from a place, and again, I'm, I'm speaking from experience having been at Chipotle, we were already doing that work and we just kind of acknowledged it by changing the role, um, title, didn't change the role, but the title. And then other companies brought in these functions where they built up all these programs. But in service to what? Part of it is, yes, you want to educate a workforce on how to be more diverse and inclusive. But let me just take it a step back. If you already um, have a standing human resources organization to start with, for example, and actually I'll... I'll um, use the model that I know Krispy Kreme has. So I've gotten to know the head of belonging, the global belonging there. Um, And he's new to the company and he is literally a team of one, might have an intern or two. And that's all they need. I say that because, look, if you're working closely with your recruiting team and your recruiting team knows how to work with hiring leaders to define a diverse set of candidates, whether they're internal to be promoted or external to be brought into the company, that's diversity in action, right? If you have an internal training team, for example, that is already working on leadership development, how are you integrating, again, equity, diversity, inclusion in that leadership training? You don't need a separate like, whole group of people to do that. I think it's grounded in how are we going, to, you know, how are we approaching the programs that we're developing inside the company to increase awareness and education around diversity and inclusion and equity. And so I think of that model, you know, if you think about it in a different way, you know, if you started in that way, maybe they wouldn't be gone in the first place, right? So instead of like adding on, all of us headcount to do that really looking systemically inside your organization, the processes, the policies that you have around people. And I'll stick with people because then you can even look at your supply chain, right. And say, do we have a diverse set of partners and vendors that we work with? But like, I think that's why it all went away because I think unless you get into the strategy and um, the system inside the company, that's how it, it, becomes programmatic versus systemic to an organization and so i think that's why it's going away like how do you and and i would also um advise that the way for it to be sustainable is to start from that place of Mm. strategy right start from that place of all right systems and how do we begin to influence that and so of that, why I said Krispy Kreme, it's like, hey, their diversity or their belonging leader is a team of one. And how is he bringing all of that knowledge to the rest of the organization? Um, so they can begin to infuse diverse, equitable, inclusion, inclusion thinking into what they do. Like that's mm-hmm. the magic.
1: Yeah. You, you bring up, you bring up the head of belonging from Krispy Kreme. It's funny because I actually came across you for the first time. Um, through a LinkedIn post from your podcast, Culture Cast, where you were talking with Christopher um, from Krispy Crane. That's so, right. Yeah. So it's kind of full circle. Um, the last thing I want to talk about here, um, and you had mentioned this event was going to be happening when we spoke on the phone about a month ago. And I remember feeling very excited about it because I was like, this is so cool how they're doing this, you know, bringing really what it is, is called the Descendants Project, bringing civil rights leaders, descendants, together for a meeting and it was and it was even at the white house with with the vice president of the united states
0: that's right and, oh my and- god uh, my goodness so again this is for me as i think about you know yes we've been talking all about my being nerdy and having had a career in human resources but i think it gets back to my own personal calling i feel like i've been living this whether it's as a human resources leader and or a leader in community and life Look, I truly believe that I'm meant to be on this earth to profoundly and joyfully connect people to one another and service to creating opportunity. And I think about that from a career standpoint, employment of a million people over o- over the different companies that I've been a part of. Now, how I got involved with this Descendants project, um, uh, two friends, Joshua Jordison, who. Um, is a music guy, but also as a big community and philanthropist dude, right? Like into like, how do you help make communities better? And then uh, met another friend, Kenneth B. Morris, Jr. Ken, who is the great, great, great grandson of Frederick Douglass and the great, great grandson of Booker T. Washington. And this idea that they had, and this was like back in 2018, I think the question was, um, for different reasons, have the families of black civil rights leaders ever come together, the descendants ever come together? And I remember the answer being, look, they've tried that before where families were trying to come together, but you know, either a family was going to try and dominate or a third party was going to try and bring them together, but it became about that third party. And so it was kind of like, well, how can we do that and be of service to all of these families? And so I'm like, if this is true, I'm in like, how can I help be a part of this? And, um, you know, they were building relationships with the various family members of right. MLK of Jesse Jackson of Malcolm X, Ida B. Wells, Rosa Parks, Emmett Till, um, Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemming, And, and I'm trying to think of all the other families and then this idea came together they're like, yeah, they're in, they want to come do this. And then I don't know how we even got into the White House, but it was about how do you bring people to our nation's capital? I think someone caught wind of this, that we were doing this and all of a sudden the White House was involved, right? Meaning that they wanted to invite the families to the White House to celebrate and just so happens it was in and around Frederick Douglass's birthday, which was February 14th. On the 13th, we were welcomed into the White House with the families and certain guests of the families to come and celebrate, you know, their heritage and history during Black History Month. And so um, that all happened last week. It's, I'm so fresh from it. And um, it really, my role behind it is a facilitator. So it's about organizing to bring the families together to bring them through these different venues in Washington, D.C. And um, it was amazing. We had a tour of the U.S. Capitol. The White House invited the families in. The Congressional Black Caucus got involved and celebrated the families on that first evening. Um, You know, Amtrak was amazing. They actually provided transportation for a few of the families to actually come into Washington D.C. from where they lived like they trained them over there like some of our elderly families who just couldn't travel by plane um and also the buses to move everyone around Washington D.C. Amtrak welcomed them in um the Smithsonian actually did a private tour for the families and guests just about over 100 people at this gathering of the um national african-american museum of history and culture that was phenomenal and um for the families rfk center for human rights like the board welcomed the families in and had the celebratory dinner with them on wednesday night so well i i share with you that was a lot of activity it's the first time in history these families coming together and you know i think i posted a link on one of the many stories that was covered during that day um I think it's all in, you know, what we do with this afterwards, right? I think what I love is like, how do you honor who they are and where they came from, but then how do you move, coalesce? How do you bring the families' com- common purpose together and make a difference in the world, right? And help utilize their platforms to kind of, you know, I, I know I sound like motherhood and apple pie, but how do we create civility and peace, you know, moving forward? With these families. And so it was exciting to be a part of that and to serve behind the scenes. I think going forward, how we move collectively, at, you know, at, as a descendants project or the families coming together, but also how can we be of service to help amplify the work they're already doing and the foundations they've already created, like the family foundations? Um, you know, it's all in what happens next, right? So stay tuned. I think there's a lot and I'm in process right now, we're in process right now debriefing with each of the family members, there's a lot that can be done that um, can make a difference in, you know, what I will say, go back to creating kindness, creating cultures of people thriving, of actually empowering this next generation of future leaders to um, create goodness in the world, you know, so it was really super cool though, like who would have thought, man, it was pretty wild.
1: Yeah, I remember you telling me, and I was like, wow, this is, this is going to be a crazy event, uh, bringing these families together for the first time. And I think I saw on LinkedIn, you've actually interviewed some of these um, family members, correct, on your podcast. Yeah. So if any of the listeners want to hear um, those conversations, where, where can they find those?
0: Yeah, so you can go and find my culture cast. It's called Culture Cast with Marisa. And typically, I'll put the name of who I'm interviewing. The first person I interviewed actually on my culture cast the day after we got together is Ken. So Kenneth B. Morris, the great, great, great grandson of Frederick Douglass and great, great grandson of Booker T. Washington. You can find that um, on a a couple of ways. You know, my name is Marisa Andrada. I have a website, m a r i s s a a n d r a d a dot com. You can find my culture cast there. It's also on Spotify, on Apple, on LinkedIn, on YouTube. You can find all of those there. And it's funny you should say that because um, I also interviewed a couple of other guests who happened to be there at the Descendants Gathering. You'll find, you know, my interview with Daryl Davis and with Charles Sims on Culture Cast. And then going forward, you know, the next series that I'll be doing is with each of the family members that joined us there. And so mm. um, more to come. More to come on that.
1: Wow! Wow! I'm definitely excited to check those out for myself. Um, but I, I can't thank you enough for coming on and just talking about, you know, your experiences, talking about building cultures, um, in the midst of chaos and, and crisis. I've been talking about, you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and how that's kind of shifted. And then ending up talking about this descendants project. You you have taught me a lot today, and I wish I could just have. Twenty four hours with you, just straight. Just, um <laughs> but but thank you so much for coming on.
0: You are so welcome. Thank you. It's been an honor to have a conversation with you. I'm excited. I'm excited about what you're doing.